Welcome to the 2014 Race, Education, and Democracy Lectures, a collaborative effort of Simmons College and Beacon Press. I'm thrilled that Chris, Dr. Christopher Emden, Associate Professor in the Department of Math, Science, and Technology at Teachers College, Columbia University, will deliver the 2014 lectures. And the topic of his lectures is hip-hop and the remix of science education, which way forward? I'm humbled to be here again and share some, some, some more of my work and my research. Um, to do a quick recap of what we discussed on Saturday, but then to extend a little bit further, um, the, the, the philosophies behind hip-hop and hip-hop education so they can go beyond what people perceive as traditional hip-hop populations. Um, and to do so, I figured I would um, start by giving you a little bit of a science lesson, a traditional type science lesson. Is that okay? Yeah. All right. Newton's three laws of motion. Let us begin our explanation of how Newton changed our understanding of the universe by enumerating his three laws of motion. Newton's first law of motion. Every object in a state of uniform motion tends to remain in that state of motion unless an external force is applied to it. Is that clear? This we recognize as essentially Galileo's concept of inertia. This is often termed simply the law of inertia. Newton's second law of motion. Ready? The relationship between an object's mass, m, its acceleration, a, and the applied force, F, is F equals MA. Acceleration and force are vectors as indicated by their symbols being displayed in slant blonde font, and that would be the case if I was to show you that. Um, and this is the most powerful of Newton's three laws. Claire? No. Did I, I, I lost you? Did, did I really? Where exactly did I lose you? Somewhere in the beginning? What if, I, what if I said this? What if I said, yo, I'm a physicist, lyricist, spittingness, ridiculousness, so witness the ignorance I dismiss. Nah, I'm a physicist slash lyricist. I smash ignorance. It's a miss when I'm spitting this. See, Newton's laws of motion be the topic of the course because things in motion stay in motion unless they hit an unbalanced force. And next up's the second law of situation and summation force equals mass times acceleration. That's the second law Newton foresaw. If you want more than the third law is in store. Uh. <laughs> See, every force got an opposite force and every action has an equal plus opposite reaction. The sum of all objects at rest is zero unless that object is no longer relaxing. I mean in motion, that's change in location till it hits traction, the coefficient of friction. Then it all comes to a full stop and there goes Newton laws over hip-hop. But hold up. I'm off Newton. I'm on a Einstein. I like Einstein because Einstein's mind is like mine. His formula was E equals MC squared, which is weird because me is your favorite MC squared. <laughs> now the concepts <laughs> in the early reading and the latter performance are exactly the same. But when I spit the second verse, that kid right there in a North Face hoodie, raise your hand, go ahead. <laughs> What was your response when you heard the second piece? Just be honest. It was better? So like, as soon as I said I'm a physicist, lyricist, he said, woo, right? And so at that juncture, I knew I had him. And that essentially is the idea behind hip-hop. It's the idea that information can be changed in different ways. It's the idea that hip-hop can be a tool for describing scientific phenomena. And earlier we talked about this. And remember I started off last time with um, progressive educational content? I'm starting off here with the parental advisory explicit content. And my goal is that after two and an eighth of a lecture, that that happens. Right? That that sets on fire and we firmly believe in this idea of hip hop as progressive educational content. Are you with me? Yeah. All right. So now we talked about this framework and I'm going to gloss through this because if you weren't here, I apologize. We're going to gloss through this so we can get down to the nitty-gritty. We talk about this idea of the necessity to have a hip-hop-based theoretical framework for teaching and learning. This idea that if every educator, whether they were teaching in hip-hop classrooms or not, 
looked at all the elements of hip-hop as the core pieces of how they instructed, then they realized that I have to learn from an MC how to use performance, movement, analogy, and story. I learned from a graffiti artist how to focus on allowing my students' work to be visible and use art. I learned from the DJ how to use technology and be creative. I learned from the break dancer how to use movement and verve. And if every teacher used this lens to view how they engage young people, all young people, whether they were in hip-hop or not, would be more engaged. We also talked about, or we glossed over this idea that in hip-hop there are aspects of hip-hop and hip-hop phenomena that are inherently scientific and mathematical. This idea that if you have somebody who's a graffiti artist who begins his graffiti piece writing in a small black book, and in that black book he's using colors and images and he's creating 3D images, and it's such complex in this, in this book that's about this wide and all of a sudden deciding that he wants to put that art piece on a wall. There's a complex mathematical and scientific knowledge that that young person has to engage in to be able to do so. He has to understand ratio and proportion, and he has to understand the inverse square law in physics, because if you spray that graffiti can from too far along, that spray paint will be light. If you get closer, it'll be more dense, and you can actually measure the thickness um, of, the, of the spray paint at different spaces. He has to know what the surface of the place that he's going to put the graffiti on is, because if he's using a place that's super smooth, then the paint will drip off. And so he has to understand such complex science in the process of just doing a graffiti piece. We talked about this idea of the science of sound, that if I go into a rap studio and I see those, those, those waves bouncing across that screen, it shows me the crest and the trough of a wave, and I can measure wavelength, and I can measure mathematically what sound will come next, and this is just a piece of being hip-hop. We talked about the neuroscience of hip-hop pedagogy. This idea that hip-hop artists have been uh, engaged in research conducted by the National Institutes of Health. And we realized that when they are deeply immersed in hip-hop, there are parts of their brain that are activated that wouldn't happen in a traditional classroom. We talked about the fact that the medial prefrontal cortex is firing on ways that we've never imagined before when you're deeply immersed in hip-hop. We talked about the fact that uh, the dorsolateral region of the brain and traditional classrooms are deactivated, so young people are not apt to behave appropriately in science classrooms. And it's a function of the lack of the structure of the classrooms to meet the needs of those students. But we didn't talk about what began this work for me? And we didn't talk about what are the practical aspects for all educators, whether or not they're immersed in hip hop or no hip hop or not. And so I want to just describe the scenario for you about where this work was birthed from. And this is kind of like a me in an apartment in Brooklyn, New York, and the Grammy Awards come on. And, you know, of course, as a music head, I'm like, man, I got to watch the Grammy Awards. So I sit there and across the screen, and it almost felt like my, my, my background wasn't black and white. And this colorful image popped across the screen. And, and this happened. The Grammy goes to And that moment just changed my entire life, right? I was like, yo, first of all, ODB just got up there and was like, he interrupted the Grammys. My running joke is always, you know, everybody talks about Kanye's Grammy moment, but Kanye's Grammy moment with Taylor Swift has nothing on Old Dirty Bass's Grammy moment. <laughs> and, um, and he got up there and he was just bold and he was like, you know, Wu-Tang is for the kids, Wu-Tang is for the children. And as a young person, I didn't exactly know what he meant by that. You know, I, I know Wu-Tang songs and I'm like, he wasn't really saying anything for the kids per se. <laughs> um, and, but, because this is the image of Wu-Tang that you get. And this is Jizza, who's a partner with me on this project. And so this is Jizza with that evil backdrop and two guns are pointed at you. And it's, it's, he's saying without saying anything, get out of my way. I am angry, and you just don't want any parts of this, right? 
he has on an ice grill. And the ice grill, I feel, is something that every educator has to know about. It's when you go into any urban school USA and you see that look on the face of the young person. And that person doesn't have to say a word to you. Just by looking at that face, you're like, man, I want no parts of that. And this idea behind the ice grill, and it's actually called the ice grill in urban communities, is literally just that, an ice grill. Because the beautiful thing about ice is what? Ice can always be melted. And so the ice grill is this intimidating face that urban youth put in front of themselves. And they, it's a mask that they wear whenever they go into the spaces where they feel that they're most vulnerable. I remember as a young person in Brooklyn, New York, I would travel from the Bronx to Brooklyn to go to high school. And when I was in the Bronx and I hopped on that four train, I'm comfortable and I'm hanging out with my friends, but I had gotten accepted into a specialized high school. So by the time I would go by two or three train stops, all my friends from my neighborhood would have done what? Got off the train, but I have to make my way all the way down to Brooklyn. So I get on that train and I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, the closer I get to mid-Manhattan, the more I feel that I have to do something to mask who I authentically am, which is a happy-go-lucky kid who's just having fun hanging out with his friends. And so we get to 149th Street in the Grand Concourse, and I stiffen up just a tad. And then we get to 125th Street, and I stiffen up a little bit more. And by the time we get to like Borough Hall, 42nd Street, the ice grill is intense. And the question was always from everybody around me, like, why do they have that angry look on their face? And the reason why that angry look was on my face was because in that space, I knew what was expected of me. I knew what the perception was of me. And I didn't want anybody to ever get to the point where they understood my inner vulnerability. And so in order for me to deflect engaging with an audience that was other than the one I came from, I had to throw on the ice grill. In fact, I oftentimes describe that my pants got a little lower. <laughs> it's a side conversation. We could talk about pants dragging a little bit. Just for the purpose of being intimidating. But the beautiful thing is that when the ice grill happens in the classroom, for the educator, it's something we can focus on. That's why we talk about teaching and learning from the students' standpoint. Because if a kid goes into your classroom or comes into your classroom and the ice grill is still present, what does that mean? It means then that you haven't created a structure in the classroom to allow the ice grill to become melted. Because even gangsters want to do well in school. Even thugs want to get a good grade. Everybody inevitably wants, inevitably wants to graduate. But if the structure is not created in the classroom to allow the ice grill to, the melt, to melt, then the ice grill becomes the only thing that you get. And listen, punching ice and punching water are two experiences. They're both compiled of, or made up of H2O, no? But if you put your fist into a, a tub of water, it may feel good. You might feel a little bit of a crash, but it's fine, it's comforting. But you punch ice and see what happens. It hurts. And so when Jizza had this experience in schools and had this experience as a hip hop artist, this was a, 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 a performance that they said, I, you know, show us what you think the world wants to see. Two guns up, pointed at you. And then you had a conversation with this man and you say, well, just when you were in school, what did you always want to be when you, you know, when you grew up? What was your plans for life when you, when, you went, when you got older? And you know what he said? I wanted to be a scientist. You wanted to be a scientist like Jizza, two guns, Jizza? Yeah, I wanted to be a scientist. Well, well, why didn't you end up being a scientist? Well, when I was in school, I'd ask questions. I tried to engage. They weren't really feeling me. And so because of that, I made a decision that I'd go somewhere else where I would feel loved, where I'd feel accepted, where people would call me a genius. His name is Jizza the Genius because in schools he wasn't given the opportunity to express his genius. And the only other place where that genius could be expressed was within hip hop. So he goes into hip hop where all of a sudden if he uses some scientific words and terms, they're like, you are a genius. And so he owns that identity that he wouldn't get in schools. He runs to hip hop to get what schools would not give him. Isn't that fascinating? And so he joins this group. He becomes one of the integral members of the group. They tour the globe, multi-platinum, millions of dollars, and then he's 30-something years old and looks at himself in the mirror and says, man, you know what I really wanted to do, though, was be a scientist. Just like, just like confronting self. So what does he do? He goes to science labs across the country, and he calls them up. Hello? Yeah, this is um, Gary Grice, a.k.a. Jizza from the Wu-Tang Clan, <laughs> right? And folks are like hanging up on him because they're like, nah, this guy, it can't be Jizza, it's a prank call, right? And at some juncture, eventually, he gets to have conversations with some scientists, and this man with two guns up, angry, founding member of the Wu-Tang Clan is this guy. 
at a lab in MIT, collaborating with colleagues, learning science. And how often do you see this and don't ever notice that behind this is that? And just as experience at 30-something years old going back is the experience of every young person in schools today in urban settings who have not had the opportunity to have their ice grills melted by the educator. And this is not because educators are not well-intentioned. This is an important thing to notice. It's because educators don't even know to recognize the fact that an ice grill exists. The lack of a realization that ice is just water. That you get so scared by what you see, you fail to recognize that the brilliance that lies beneath. And that eventually is what spurred on science genius. Essentially trying to create a situation where other young people like Jizza, who would have been pushed out of schools and run towards hip hop, or run towards being an athlete, or run towards having a career and doing anything else illegal, will be able to embrace their full scientific self. Because as we talked about on Saturday, science is deeply embedded in the DNA of people of color. That's the story of Thomas Fuller, that's the story of, of, of uh, Harriet Tubman. The inherent scientific nature of their experiences cannot be discounted. We saw this. Remember this? This attempt to exchange. The second attempt and third attempt and fourth attempt and fifth attempt You know what's so funny about this? Every time I play it, I, I see it a different way. You know, I, I'm often reminded about something we talked about last time, that every consistent patterned action becomes a ritual. If I were to explain the complexities of what's going on with this video, I could do it once and you'd get it and it would be just an anomaly. I could present it a second time and you're like, wow, that's interesting. It would take me to come back to Simmons for a third lecture for you to really truly understand the complexities of what's going on here because a ritual has to be enacted at least three times before you see the beauty and what's going on there. But you remember this. And then you also remember this. CO. Oh, 27. 27. The young ladies in the class who were engaging as soon as the teacher asked the question, who before he even landed had the hands up, which is, I could do this all year, um, which is again just an indicator that they weren't truly learning what's going on in the classroom. And that, to me, being that it's a mask for their science-mindedness. So what is science-mindedness? And we didn't talk about this. We transitioned into the new lecture now in a little bit. What is science-mindedness? Science-mindedness is the amalgamation of the, all the skills, traits, dispositions, and attributes of the most prolific and brilliant scientists of our time. We actually did the research. We looked at the Einsteins and said, what made Einstein Einstein? What made him so creative? What made him be the person who was able to come up with the theory of relativity? Did you guys know that Einstein initially developed the theory of relativity by imagining himself riding a light beam in outer space? Like he was sitting somewhere and was like, man, wouldn't it be crazy if I was sitting on top of this light beam? And then light, that light beam sort of flew across space. And then I was in a different sort of space and time zone. And I'm looking back at the universe. How would the scale of time play out if I was watching Earth from a different place. Now, think about a young person in the classroom who goes to their teacher and says, you know what, last night, I was imagining myself riding a light beam in outer space. What would happen? Huh? You'd laugh? That's, that's if you're light. If you're light about it, you're like, oh, you're so funny. Or a certain educator would be like, somebody call a psychiatrist, right? He's like, I would call a psychiatrist, I'm picking. Or, or the fact that the, the, the structure of aromatic compounds were developed by somebody who thought imaginatively as well. That, that imagined a snake biting its own tail. What? 
That's real. <laughs> that we wouldn't have known that aromatic compounds or all these things that structured and whip back on each other unless somebody thought outside of the box and said, I was imagining a snake biting its own tail. And so we think about Kakuli's notion of the aromatic compounds and the structure of that. We talk about Einstein's developing of the theory of relativity. We talk about all these other scientists and realize that they had these certain skills. One, they had keen observation skills. They're able to sit somewhere, observe what's going on around them, take detailed notes and describe that back to an audience. Think about a research scientist. What does a research scientist do every day? Research. Research, but essentially go out in the field, observe what's going on in the field, take detailed and copious notes, and describe that back to the scientific community. Well, that's what hip-hop artists do all day. When Jay-Z you know, insulted Nas and said, dog, you never lived it. You witnessed it from your folks' pad. You scribbled in a notepad, and you created your life. He's saying essentially that you were standing in the window observing what's going on in the community. You took these detailed notes, created raps out of it, and they were such detailed and accurate roles that people really thought that you lived that life, but you weren't really about that life. I mean, I'm not saying that Nas isn't about that life, but that's what Jay-Z said. <laughs> but essentially, what Jay-Z was critiquing Nas for doing was showing him that he had all the skills, dispositions, and traits to be a prolific scientist. Or this idea of being a skeptic. Meaning that if somebody gives you information, you're not just going to receive it just because they give you the information. You have to go back and check to make sure the background information is accurate before you claim that as a fact. Well, we just talked about this idea in hip-hop of are you, about, are you about that life or keeping it real or keeping it 100. It's the difference between Eminem and Vanilla Ice, for example. Vanilla Ice was a white rapper. Anybody remember Vanilla Ice? Yeah. Ice Ice Baby? That song is bumping too. I don't care what anybody says. You could insult Vanilla Ice, but when Ice Ice Baby dropped in the hood, everybody was getting down. Ice Ice, Ice Baby. You know, but you think about Vanilla Ice as a, as a white rapper who came in, blew up, amazingly respected artist, and you think about Eminem, white rapper, not from Detroit, he claims he's not, he, he claims a D, but he's from the outskirts of Detroit. And they both talk about these narratives about their lives. And Eminem is revered within hip hop circles as one of the most prolific and brilliant MCs ever. He's a, an amazing lyricist, but beyond that, people just respect who he is. And think about Vanilla Ice, he's trying to get a show on HGTV. Like rappers are like, whatever, dog. And so, what's the difference between these two white rappers? The difference is because Vanilla Ice at some point claimed that he was from the hood in Miami and he got shot. And then a revelation came that he lied about all of that. And the minute that they found out that he lied about his background, that was the demise of his career. Because scientists and hip-hop artists are alike in the sense that if you make a claim, we'll go back and do the investigations to ensure that that claim is authentic. And then when you make that claim to the public, it has to be factual. If it's factual, I agree with you, we can move with that until somebody disproves it, and otherwise we won't. And that's exactly what hip-hop artists do. You cannot say you're keeping it real if somebody could go back and check your files and it's not authentic. The only person that could get away with that is Rick Ross, and his demise is impending. <laughs> right? That you're analytical, that you speak in metaphor and analogy. That's all hip-hop. And, you know, I was going to, I was going to, um, so I believe in, um, mixing things up presentation-wise. So I'm going to spit again. I can't help it, right? So when I say hip, y'all say hop. Hip, hip. When I say hip, y'all say hop. Hip, hip. If I say we don't, y'all say stop. We don't, we don't. I said we don't. You say what? We don't. So I sit in the back of the science class unconscious because everything that my teacher spitting was nonsense. I tried to raise my hand, but I avoid the conflict because when I raised my hand, I wasn't the one he was going to pick. So I sat there, mind in another place, rapping to myself, different time, different space, displaced because I couldn't keep pace, couldn't wait for the bell so I could make my escape. And that was the experience of that young man in that video when he talked back about how he couldn't engage in that classroom. So now listen to this. So my step pops is beating me. My mom's ain't feeding me. I'm throwing up easily. I feel I got a seat in me. I just made the honor roll. I can't let my mama know. Not about the honor roll, that I'ma be a mama. So my clothes get baggier, my eyes get saggier. Looking around the school saying soon, I'm saying bodier. Displaced, moved at a different pace. Couldn't wait for the bell so I could make my escape. And that was the story of one of those young ladies when they had their hands raised, who actually started moving to the front of the class and not studying anymore because she was pregnant at 15. And so behind the ice grill, 
It's just water. Behind the ice grill is just water. So that closes out our review. Now let's get back to work. Y'all about to get that work. Um, this image is of Native American students in the United States taken from different parts of the country and brought to a school to get an education. We can look at those faces and we see no joy, we see no happiness, we do see uniformity. If we were to talk about teaching and learning from the student's standpoint and focus on the population in this image, it would be impossible to think about it. This process of schooling is completely antithetical to any focus on the standpoint of the people in that image. Are you with me? And I make the argument that the experiences of that population, we can fast forward and go to 1890, and that's what the classroom looks like. We could go to 1990, 100 years later, and that's what the classroom looks like. We could go to 2014, just a couple of weeks ago, and that's what the classrooms look like. Do you see anything? Similar, I feel like singing Sesame Street. Some of these things belong, what do you see there? Do you see anything there? Other than the fact that one picture's black and white, one is in color and one is probably more vivid images, the idea essentially is that the structure of schooling in America has remained exactly the same. Some would argue with me, they'd say, well, Dr. Emden, Professor Emden, or Chris, or the MC with a PhD, what you're saying doesn't really make much sense. If I go into a classroom today, at least we see the seats structured in groups of four. Because somehow, a couple years ago, people said, well, kids should be sitting in groups of four. And so you go into a classroom and they're sitting in groups of four, but essentially the structure of the classroom is the exact same way. The teachers are teaching the same way, the instructions happen the same way, in some instances you have the same books. 18, 19, 19, 90, 2014, the structure of the classroom is the exact same way. And that essentially is the same as this. So now I want to talk about why I'm jumping from slide to slide. Why am I jumping from here to here? And here for the theory buffs, because I, I got to give the hip hop people what they want, and I got to give the students what they want, and then I got to give the scholars what they want. I make the argument that theoretically, the way past this move from here to here is to understand that we have to have new theoretical frameworks for viewing classrooms. I'm gonna give you a little dose of theory. I make the argument for us looking at what's going on in education as a push for what I call a neo-indigenous cosmopolitanism. That sounds like a mouthful, I know, but I'm gonna make it simple. You know, they always say, be plain, brother, be plain. Or the five Bs, be brief, brother, be brief. I can't do the former, so I'll try to be plain. You see, Anything that happens on a larger global sphere, which is those larger circles, inevitably has an implications on what happens in ground zero, which is the classroom. At the same time, what's happened historically has been embedded in the structures of our global constructs that they inevitably also happened in the classroom. I'm making the argument that if historically in a more global sphere, whether we're talking about colonization, whether we're talking about imperialism, if we're talking about the fact that certain populations in spaces that were supposed to educate them have gone through a process where they were relegated to subaltern positions and we have not addressed those issues culturally, they inevitably become apparent again in the classroom. Anything that happens that goes untroubled, that goes uninvestigated, will always come back. The chickens will always come home to root. What happens in the darkness will always come back to light. The failure for us to address in educational settings what happened in populations historically always inevitably will play out and show up again in the classroom. A way to move past that and subvert that in many ways is to look at this idea of those who have historically been marginalized, the indigenous populations, whether we're talking about the Maori in New Zealand or we're talking about the Aboriginal in Australia or we're talking about Native Americans in the United States, to look at the similarities between the experiences of those who we've identified as marginalized and the experiences of young people in classrooms. So that what happens on the global, we can make some sense of in the local. You still with me? If that's the case, we have to then identify and address what the similarities are between those on the more global sphere and then on the local sphere. So if you talk about indigenous populations, what are we able to identify? We're able to identify the fact that they have distinct linguistic traditions, very unique ways of talk and dress, meaning that if I go to uh, 
uh, to, to, to a Maori population, for example, they're, they're, the ways that they've, they've understood their lands and made up their language is very unique and distinct. So that we can use as an identifier of indigenous populations. We can also talk about the fact that indigenous populations have this really close tie to their places of origin, where they come from, the land. It's almost a spiritual connection to the land. And then we can talk about the fact that they are, have experienced oppression at the hands of a more larger, powerful, dominant other. We, in this instance, we could talk about more colonial powers. So this is what I, helps us identify uh, indigenous populations as indigenous. Yes? Let's look at urban youth in classrooms. Let's look at this idea of having a distinct linguistic tradition. If you go to any hood USA, the way that they have manipulated and repurposed the English language to meet their own unique needs in that setting is mind-boggling. In, in many respects, what they're doing is recreating the ways that indigenous develop their own linguistic languages in their own urban settings. So that when I go to LA and folks are talking about Snoop Talk, they're doing the pushizzles, pushizzles, pushizzles my nizzles. And if I go to Queensbridge Projects in New York, they're saying the what up done. And those spaces, they're taking English and repurposing them for their own unique purposes so they can have their own distinct linguistic traditions. Very much like how the indigenous populations are the same with their language. Similarity. What happened historically will reemerge. We can talk about this idea of oppression at the hands of a more dominant and powerful other. In the case that we're talking about colonial powers, we are talking about the same thing when we talk about the criminal justice system. I give y'all a, a story of my experience with the criminal justice system just four or five days ago. The idea that oppression at the hands of a more dominant other happened globally and historically and happens in the local and the classroom as well. And then also, most importantly, close ties to your places of origin. You ever go to a young person and say, yo, where you from? And they will name their street corner. And you said, no, but, but like, where you from, though? Like, I told you, this is my hood. This is where I'm from. But, but, but you, you look Latino, like you have, you know, you look like you, you have, well, well, my mama and, um, and my grandma and I'm um, from Puerto Rico, but I'm from my hood. And that close, almost spiritual tie to the place of origin, again, is a way in which these larger indigenous traditions get played out again with the neo-indigenous. And so the argument I'm making is that, theoretically, we could look at what's going on here uh, uh, to go towards a neo-indigenous cosmopolitanism. What is cosmopolitanism? And I'll play that again later. Is this idea that every human being has to feel responsible for each other, this interconnectedness across communities. And I'm making an argument that when we talk about cosmopolitanism, we can talk about it in the classroom space, which I will later, but we can also talk about the fact that urban youth have to be connected back to the indigenous. Any population who does not understand their roots, any population does not understand the fact that what they're going through today, in essence, is a, is a, is a replication in many ways or a, a different form of what happened historically, sees themselves as existing in isolation. And if they exist in isolation, we have no path towards solving their problems. And so the way to address what's going on with urban youth in classrooms and what we people identify, we identify them as scholars as these newfound things that are going on in these communities. These kids have this new language. Look what's going on with these young kids in urban settings in the criminal justice system. Look how they're so, close, so closely tied to their blocks without understanding that what's, what they're expressing, what's going on there, what's emerging there is essentially a replication of what's happened on the global sphere already. And if you tie young people back to what's going on historically, then they have a path and an ancestry. This is why I always tell folks when I talk about hip-hop that you can't say hip-hop just started in 1979 or just, just started in one place. That hip-hop, you have to express it as, as a newfound form of African-American culture and history. That hip-hop was happening with talking drums with the, in West Africa. Hip-hop was going on with slave narratives. Hip-hop was going on in the black church, et cetera. That hip-hop is just a, a, a new form of this existing African-American history. And if you tie that back to young people, then they see that they have roots somewhere. Just, just as a sidebar, this is also why uh, a, a, a way that hip-hop has, has taken such an, uh, uh, has been able to be abused and manipulated is also, is also how we play with this idea of hip-hop as youth culture. I don't talk about this often, but you know, we're going to just talk, right? When hip hop is continually expressed and represented as just youth culture, that becomes part of the reason why, part of the ways why we can't address what's going on with hip hop youth, because then there's no space for elders in hip hop. Any community with the absence of elders is lost. Developmentally, a child who doesn't have adult role models is lost. So when we say, oh, hip hop is youth culture, hip hop is youth culture, then the youth feel like they are creating and making and existing on their own with no guidance. The further away that we push elders out of hip hop and we extract it from its larger traditions, the more we'll have a generation of young people who exist on their own. They cannot make their connections back to their indigenous history. Y'all ain't hear me though, all right? So now, I talked about those schools 
And I talked about the fact that, you know, these populations are being schooled. And here's the distinction I'd like to make. The difference between schooling and education. It's fine, but it's significant. It's fine, but it's significant. And I pulled for some quotes of folks who I idolize, um, their views of education on. The first is the big homie, Albert Einstein. That's the big homie. Um, and Einstein says, education is what remains after one has forgotten what one has learned in school. That's how, so you, these quotes, man, we could, I, like, we could straight up do lectures on each of these quotes. Think about the idea. Education is what remains after one has forgotten what one has learned in school. What is he trying to tell us here? He's trying to tell us that the process of schooling is, is, is extracted from real experience. So that to be truly educated, you actually have to go out and forget what you done learned. You have to forget the indoctrination to be truly educated. Therefore, it means that the role of the educator is to, to play an extra effort to ensure that the young people in classrooms are not just learning the content, but are learning the application of content. Application of content to what? Application of content to real life. Because once the content is applied to real life, then you remember what you're learning in school based on experience. So education is what remains after one has forgotten what one has learned in school, but if you're experiencing and living what has learned in school, then it's okay if you forget it because you know it through the application of the knowledge. Mark Twain, I've never let my school interfere with my education. <laughs> Tagore, do not limit a child, and this one here, do not limit a child to your own learning, for he was born in another time. And what I've done is, you notice that some of those things are white, in, in white with, with the red font. You know, my definition of education is that, I'm reading what's in white only. Education is what remains after school interferes with your own learning. It's oftentimes the case. And the final quote, which I think is the big thing, and this is hard when you're talking to folks who are, you know, sort of in the standards era and getting information out era, and this to me is the purpose of education. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. That right there is it. You see, if you light a fire, then you will remember what's going on in school and you'll pull forth of it when you need it, but that is an abstract concept. What do you mean by lighting a fire? How do you, how do you have a standard for lighting a fire? <laughs> What is, the, what, is the, what is the standardized examination that can use to assess the lighting of a fire? There is none. However, when you light a fire, you know it. And I make the argument that you only light a fire if you go where the fire should be lit, which is where the students are. And we're going to give you some tools to get through that really quickly. Um, and this is where I make my transition. So, so this is the, uh, um, the initial population that you saw on the top that we showed the clip of. We got a population at the bottom, which is a more contemporary school. I'm making the argument that these, these structures are quite similar. And then I, I want you to hear from somebody on this. And most of all, making sure we are giving every one of our children the best possible education. The best possible education is the single most important factor in determining whether they succeed. But it's also what will determine whether we succeed. The key to the opportunity, it is the civil rights issue of our time. It is the civil rights issue of our time. It is the civil rights issue of our time. It is the civil rights issue of our time. If education is the civil rights issue of our time, then I would argue that the most egregious violation of those civil rights is the extraction of youth culture from their education. Because with the extraction of youth culture from their education, you have no opportunity to have the tools to light a fire. And what I want to share with you today is how you light that fire. So back to theory. You're going to get a little bit of everything. Y'all going to get that work and get the theory. You're going to get the practice. You're going to get everything. How do you light that fire? This is how you light that fire. You light the fire by using a more broad, I think, social, social cultural theoretical framework to assess what's going on here. The first thing is this idea that every young person comes to a classroom with social capital, right? That means that if you come into any space, you have knowledge just as you walk in there. That you came in here to hear me speak today or to, to hang out with your friends or whatever else it is, but by virtue of being in this unique space, you have certain knowledges based on your past experiences that make you more versed than others. And the fact that you're sitting here, I'm gonna use you as an example because we spoke earlier, and you may not necessarily be deeply versed in hip hop, doesn't mean that you're not a knowledgeable person. But the fact that he walked in here, that young man who said, whoa, when I spit my verse, and he knows more rap artists than you do, 
I would make the argument that you guys have different forms of social capital, but in this conversation about hip hop, he may have forms of social capital that are able to interact with me more than say yours. And that's huge, because it says then that this, how old are you? 14 year old has more connections with the professor than say this, I'm not gonna ask you how old you are. <laughs> right? that by virtue of our shared experiences and shared forms of social capital, we have more opportunities to connect. So we have different forms of social capital. What happens to social capital is, and my homie back there, we went through this example with the glasses and the bald head. You know what, I'm gonna use you again, I'm gonna use you again as an example. Can you stand up for a second? Right? So, so this, this is my dude, by the way, so I can use him as an example. So he walks in here, and what do you notice about his head? He looks like mine, he's fresh shaved. You see the beard? You see the glasses? You see the swag? Right? So we have these two young people, can we call us young people? Who are here, and by virtue of just our similarities, right, our, our, our phenotypic similarities, for example, there are certain forms of connection that we'll have to each other because we, we vibe with each other. I'm like, fam, I tried to shave my head yesterday, got cut. Damn, yo, it's crazy. I feel you, I've been there, you know? It was raining and we came outside and our glasses got fogged up. Yeah, man, I've been there. All these non-glasses cats don't feel our pain, right? You know, I'm trying to grow my beard, everybody calls me common. Do they call you common too? Feel you. So all of a sudden, even if we didn't know each other before, by virtue of having these shared experiences, we have shared forms of social capital. We would connect to each other. If this was a crowded room and I didn't know any of you from Adam and I saw that dude, that's the dude I'm more likely to connect with, right? So that means we have different forms of social, shared forms of social capital. By having shared forms of social capital, we're more likely to gravitate towards each other. So in a crowded room, I would go talk to him. We'd engage, we'd have things to talk about before we even knew each other. And all of a sudden we have these dense, close networks to each other. And the thing with dense networks to each other is that if you meet somebody that, that you vibe with and you connect with, it's a great thing for you because you feel loved and your needs are met, but what happens to everybody else in the room? It's like they don't exist. Matter of fact, why do we need to talk to them? They're not bald-headed with swag, right? So there's no need to have a conversation with them. And so we form these dense networks to each other, and by virtue of forming these dense networks to each other, we end up forming bonds, and those bonds allow us to exist in this affiliation-alienation dialectic, which is that we become so closely affiliated to each other that we are likely to alienate everybody else. So let's say you walked in here and people wanted to talk to you, I would command all your time and all your interest, and we'd have a conversation, and everybody else would be outside of our small world. And that those dense networks has positive consequences for us in that moment, but negative consequences because let's say somebody in this room was going to offer you or me a job. We wouldn't even have an opportunity to engage with them because we're too busy talking about our bald heads and our glasses. <laughs> So our dense networks then start having negative consequences because it, it, it results in our inability to connect with other people. Y'all with me? And so that's part of this work about negative consequences. But the thing is that if those negative consequences exist and these dense networks exist, and that's what's happening with young people in classrooms, i.e., and this is what hip hop has done, right? It's people who, young people who listen to the same hip hop, from the same background, same linguistic traditions, same everything, they vibe and connect to each other, and if they vibe and connect to each other and they affiliate with each other, guess who they alienate? The teacher. Guess who they alienate? The content. And they will not ever go and turn on to the content or turn on to the teacher because the teacher doesn't have the forms of social capital that the students hold. And when they're connected to each other, they have all their basic needs met. I got somebody to talk to, crack jokes with, and who's experienced the same things that I've experienced. And so we're existing in our small world, and we're feeling each other and all is great. The world is passing us by, but we realize that the world doesn't exist only in that small place because, you know, every social field has porous boundaries, right? But the rest of the world is passing us by, and we cannot connect to it. And inevitably, what will happen is that we're going to need to connect with other people in the room. But we don't have the tools to be able to do so. So therefore, the role of the educator then becomes what? It becomes to create weak ties. Y'all gotta hear me on this one. The job of the role of the educator is to create weak ties. Weak ties that will penetrate existing dense networks so that the teacher can learn the forms of social capital of the student. If the teacher truly wants to light a fire, we said education is not the filling of the pail, it's the lighting of a fire. If you wanna really light the fire, you have to be create weak ties with those students that you hope to develop into strong ties that will expand the possibilities for those young people, if that's what your goal is. Now, if your goal is to just keep things going the way they are, then you could be an educator who maintains the status quo. More power to you. 
But otherwise, we have to create these weak ties. Now, what are these weak ties? This weak ties, to get these weak ties, it requires some expression of, uh, of, of vulnerability on the part of the educator, right? It requires an understanding that, listen, I'm smart and I'm intelligent and I know my content, but I don't know hip hop like that 14 year old. It requires me then saying that I have to learn from him so I can find some connection to what he expresses and brings to the classroom and what's important to him. Are you gonna be accepted right away? No. But you, but, but you cannot get anywhere unless you begin there first. And that's what brings me to my tools of reality pedagogy. Did I lay the backdrop for y'all? Now I'm, now I'm a hammer at home, reality pedagogy. What is reality pedagogy? Reality pedagogy is an approach to teaching and learning that focuses on the realities of youth experiences as the anchor for the instruction, the first place of the instruction. Not a standard, not a textbook, not even the content. I thought you was a scientist. I am a scientist. You wanna do a science battle with me later on? I'll show you that I got that work scientifically. I am making the argument that I am throwing the content out as the first step of the instruction and I'm beginning first with understanding the realities of the youth experiences. You mad or not? And if that's what reality pedagogy is, that becomes a larger philosophical thing. I always say this, you know, reality pedagogy for me was a merging of culturally relevant pedagogy and critical pedagogy. You know, the big homie OG, Gloria Latson Billings, who I love, I adore immensely. That's like my academic mama. We, we talked all the time about this idea of culturally relevant pedagogy. The instruction has to be relevant to the youth culture. And what's happened with culturally relevant pedagogy is that's become a piece of what happens in any educational school 101. You take the urban and multicultural class, they're gonna tell you culturally relevant pedagogy. The students are gonna take that information, they're gonna memorize it. When they memorize it, they're like, okay, culturally relevant pedagogy. I'm gonna use the culture of the kids. That teacher goes into the classroom with the kids, he looks and says, oh my gosh, a bunch of black and brown kids in the school, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna be culturally relevant. What are they into? They're into um, um, hip hop, music. Okay guys, I want, you, I, I want you all to rap. And the kids are looking at you like, what the hell are you doing? Because that's not how you would introduce a conversation about rap. You see, the thing about those weak ties is when you get in there and understand the weak ties, you know that you just can't come up in there asking questions, right? Anybody who goes in the hood and asks a question first is a narc. That's the perception. So if you just go in there and say, I want you, it's not going to happen. It's sometimes in the approach. But once you understand the weak ties, they let you into that world, then they give you the tools you need to be able to understand how to navigate that world. Right? So you got reality pedagogy. Do your kids understand their uh, reality, um, culturally relevance? And my quote is always this. You know, you cannot be culturally relevant if you're viewing the culture based on your perception of the culture. You see, the human body is a filter. I talked about this on Saturday. We're, we, we come with our experiences. So if you go somewhere and say, okay, those are those populations, that's their culture. Let me tell you what I think of their culture. Then once it goes inside your brain and you rework that based on your experiences, you are taking the authentic forms of culture and refashioning it based on your experiences. By the time you spit it back out, it has no reflection of what the authentic culture is. It's like playing telephone. You ever play telephone? Yeah. One person whispering in the air, you know, I'm coming next. By the time you get to the classroom, somebody's having sex. I'm like, how'd that happen? It's the same idea. When the information gets, pardon me, young people, once the, once, once the information comes in, if it's filtered through, it's lost in the process. If that's the case, then we have to move from culture relevance, but it has to be accompanied with uh, an active search for the realities of the young people. And I make the argument that reality pedagogy, I've given y'all the philosophy, and this is where a lot of education theories fall short. A lot of people understand the philosophy, teachers don't got the tools. You know what I mean? So you, you know, I wrote a paper recently, it was, uh, it's you know, moving in a boat without a paddle. A lot of teachers are in a boat. You know, I'm with it. And then when they get in the boat, <laughs> right, and no one's going anywhere. Because you, you can't give an educator information without giving them the tools to be able to activate said information. I would make the argument that it's even more frustrating. It's like, but I'm trying to be culturally relevant, but they just won't rap for me. And then, you know what I mean? And then all of a sudden, the frustration builds. And once that frustration builds, you're saying, then, then the narrative exists where it becomes a blame of the students. We talked on Saturday about the, the, the giving of tools. Remember we talked about the iPad? Right? The giving of tools, we're like, man, we gave all these kids the iPads, they're still awful. Darn kids. It becomes, I was culturally relevant. They're still not good. Darn kids. And all these situations keep playing out these scenarios where it, for, it creates a blame the student or blame the parent ideology when it's an absence of giving the teachers the appropriate tools to implement uh, powerful instruction. So y'all ready for these tools? Yes. Or not? Yes. All right, so.
Or not. Um, see, the kids, see, the kids get me. The kids get me. The kids get me. We're having a nice time. They're giggling. They're getting all my jokes. And all of y'all are like, why does he keep saying or not? Um, or not. Or um, not. Kids, do me a favor. Once the lecture's over, just go explain to them why we keep saying or not, because they're looking at me like I'm crazy. And you know what's funny, too? They're taping this, too. So somebody's going to catch. They gonna, I know what's going to happen. They're going to look at the whole tape. They're going to take the piece where I keep saying or not, and they're going to be like, they made this guy a professor at Columbia. What is wrong with y'all? Just explain it to them later, please. All right, so reality pedagogy. I'm going to give you all the practical tools. Te who's a teacher educator in here? Oh, we got a bunch of, so this is the work right here. Uh, reality pedagogy has six C's. First C, co-generative dialogue. Repeat after me. Co-generative dialogue. One more time. Co-generative dialogue. Last time, co-generative now, cogenerative has multiple syllables, so if you want to break it down, you can just call them cogens, all right? Cogens, you call them cogens. The second C is co-teaching. Everybody say co-teaching. 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 Co Excellent. Third C, cosmopolitanism. Cosmopolitanism. Ooh, my kids got that down. That's what's up. Fourth, context. Context. Then content. Content. Then competition. Competition. All right? So cogens, co-teaching, cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism, context, content, and competition. Those exist in that order for a reason. In the amazing book that Yasha Kopp, when it's done, that I'm writing with Beacon Press, these are the order of the chapters. We're literally one cogen chapter, one co-teaching chapter, one cosmopolitanism chapter. We're putting it all out there. These happen in order for a reason. I want you all to look at that order. You see, are you looking at that order? You see the, how I got them? First of all, they're all C's, right? That's just so people can remember them, right? C-O's. They're all C-O's. But not correction officers, but they're all C-O's. <laughs> I'm sorry. But if you notice, if you look there, where does, a, where does the content come in? Where does the content come in? Almost at the end. It's not the last thing, but it's almost at the end. This, I get in trouble for this all the time. But this, to me, I would argue, is the, is, the, is the most significant piece of teacher preparation, teacher education. When we, when we, when we are embedded in a culture that's hyper-focused on the significance of content, it becomes a badge of honor to hold your content, particularly for STEM educators. I've gone to give PDs at schools or do coaching at schools. I walk in there, and they say, there's a PD after school, ninth period, all teachers come. And the teachers that come in first are the arts teachers, and the English teachers. And I'm, way, I'm like, where are the science teachers? The science teachers won't show. You know why? Because they're so hooked on their content that you got an ego. Scientists, look, there's nobody with more ego in the world than scientists. No, I've never met. Y'all thought rappers talk about themselves? Scientists talk about themselves in the third person on a consistent basis. In the classroom, in the, in, in the classroom, when I, the scientists have this idea, they're like, oh, professional development, oh gosh, I don't need that. I got a darn chemistry degree. How dare they ask me to work on my teaching? And that becomes the big argument. In fact, I would argue that these hierarchies are they're important for us to deconstruct. I'll tell you a quick story. So I was teaching physics, ninth grade class, and um, it was like Friday, and I had just graduated from my master's program in natural sciences upstate. So I'm chilling, and, and um, it's Friday, and I get a call from my boy. And my boy is a scientist, um, and there's a party. And he's like, Chris, you got to come up to Troy this weekend. It's going to be an amazing party. And you know. I'm like, dog, I would come, but I have literally 200 test papers for my students. They just took a test. And if I don't have these tests graded to bring back on Monday, I'm in trouble. And anybody who teaches knows. If you tell the kids take the test, they want the test back an hour later. I'm like, dude, I got to grade them. So, so I'm like, I can't come to the party. But he's like, yo, Chris, it's going to be crazy, man. Because you know, ain't no party like a science party, because science parties don't stop. So, yo. Scientists have the best parties ever because we just like we just we're just amazing like that. So, so he's like, come to the party. I'm like, I can't, I can't. We're going back and forth. I'm like, yo, I have all these tests to grade. He's like, you know what, Chris, come to the party anyway, and at the end of the party, I'll help you grade some of the tests. You know, you give me half of them, I grade half of them, and you'll be ready by Monday. So that's all I need to hear. I jump in the whip, I'm going to the party, right? So I get up there, get to the party. We're partying all weekend, science party. Um, they were with some geologists, so you know we were rocking it. Get it? No? All right, sorry, it's bad, bad, bad. All right, so, so we're out there, we're in a party, we're having a nice time, 
It's Sunday evening. Sunday evening comes, and the first thing that happened was everybody's talking about their recent research. Someone's like, yeah, I'm doing my stem cell work. You know, Chris, you were working in the lab with us with the stem cell work. It's doing so great. We're making our own gels now. And so I, I thought that was a fun conversation. We were talking about it. So everybody goes around, and they were talking about all the science that they're doing. And so they're like, so Chris, what are you doing now? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm teaching. Guess what they all, they were like, aww. <laughs> Really? That's so nice of you. So, you. so you left science to teach science? That's the perception. That I left science to teach science. Like, I, like all of a sudden I took a teaching job and I said I'm no longer a scientist. Right? It's this hubris that comes with engagement in those disciplines that views the education as the lowest in the tonal pole. And so when you go into a school, when the science educator is perceived as the lowest on the totem pole amongst the world of scientists, what happens is the replication of oppression that exists in every space. So all of a sudden, in a school where we're all educators, I have to create a new hierarchy where I place myself on the highest of that totem pole so I can, so I can put forth the same kind of a, things I've experienced with my scientist friends or my fellow educators. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> and the thing is that in those classrooms, especially with the disciplines like the science and the STEM disciplines, those are the disciplines that the kids need to be most engaged in. In fact, I would make the argument that the STEM educators have to be the educators who are most tuned in to youth culture. Why? If we're talking about equity, the fact that STEM jobs, 26 STEM workers make 26 times more than the average worker. California got a million plus STEM jobs, they can't even fill them. They gotta go overseas to try to have people. You, you know, that's where you want the kids to be able to go into. But that's a place where the educators are so deeply uh, sort of inundated with their, their content expertise that they don't become true educators. But here's the end of that story. So after we had this conversation, they all said, aw, and gave me hugs for giving back. <laughs> I was like, listen, y'all can say whatever you want, but right now I need to grade my tests, right? So I dish out my tests, my ninth grade physics exam, and we get to grading. And so we're grading, we're grading, and then something says, Chris, Go back and look at these tests, these, these casts is graded, just to make sure. So I go back and I'm looking at the tests. And I'm like, wait, it's a basic kinematics question. It's a PhD scientist, it's wrong. I'm like, dude, this is wrong. Like, like well, time out. Don't grade any more tests, stop. I'm like, this is, this is, this is wrong. Like, I don't understand, I'm going through them. I'm going, it's wrong. And, and guess what the conclusion was at the end? He said, well, well, not bad, I'm sorry if it's wrong. And at first I thought it was like, maybe he part it too hard, so he forgot. And, and the response was this, he was like, my fault if it's wrong, but I'm a scientist. I don't remember the last time I've done any of this stuff. It's profound. I'm a scientist. I don't remember the last time I've done any of this stuff. All this basic stuff, this basic formulas that you're asking your kid to memorize, I don't need to memorize that. If I wanted to get a basic formula, I would go to Google and get the basic formula. I am doing science, so I am engaging in the work. I am asking questions, I'm posing new theories and ideas. If I need to get basic knowledge, I have a tool to assess that easily, and I could engage in the real science. But yet, in the classrooms, particularly with the kids who are most marginalized, they're engaging in a process of science, and I was a part of that process of science, where they're doing and memorizing and having a hard time and bored to death in the nature of the discipline that's completely antithetical to what the discipline actually is. Now, I'm not saying you gotta read. Hey, hold on, hold on. That's dope, that's dope. I love that, I love that. So, I'm not saying, I'm, saying, I'm not saying you gotta read. What I'm saying is this.
There you go. You're rocking whatever you want to wear. You can listen to, you know, you can rock whatever clothes you want. The science that you're actually doing, you're not doing a question that somebody tells you what to do. You're investigating scientific research as a part of what you are fascinated about. So let's say you're like, yo, why are roaches in the project never done? <laughs> who are literally doing scientific research every day on studying why the ghosts never die. Like, if you, the question is, why are there sinkholes in the ground? Why is the sky blue? What happens with the, um, with the, with the oil spill? How does that affect the animals? Science is a discipline where all those kind of questions, you can ask them and do your own research doing it once you get to the point where you're doing science. So I'm not saying you got to memorize the information. I'm just saying know that just because it's whack and it's boring doesn't mean that's what science is like. Science is dope. Trust me. Science is the sexiest I'm sorry guys, I know we have a speech. I'm sorry. We're gonna talk about this afterwards. My bad, pardon me. He just said something, I had to go there. Right? So so those are reality pedagogy. We got the five, the six C's going on there. So now I'm gonna give you the tools. You ready for the tools? Yeah. Boom. initially, so it looks a little confusing to you. I will explain to you what's going on here. This is the cogenerative dialogue. Now if you look, what do you see? You see a bunch of students and a teacher. I'm not going to go through what a cipher is again because we talked about it on Saturday, but what's going on here is I've identified some students in the classroom who would give me as a teacher some insight into their experiences, into their realities. On my own, I can't get it. So I have to actively as a teacher select students to give me that information. I will pick students that represent different groups in the classroom. Alexis, for example, I know very well, always engage, always ask brilliant questions. So for me, Alexis is a representative of all other students in my class who are asking profound questions. One kid always represents a larger group. You, for example, are a disengaged student, not now. I, I, I always go through this. But that's who you were. She would then be a representative of all disengaged students in my classroom. I'm identifying kids that serve as exemplars in different sides of the spectrum, right? Always paying attention, not paying attention. I invite each of them outside of class to have a conversation with me about how they're experiencing the classroom. I cannot teach unless I do that. And I have to purposely pick kids that represent different groups because as educators, we're likely to pick the kid who's always getting 100. And when I put those kids who represent different groups together to engage in a dialogue, I get really profound insight into the nature of my teaching. And I also break the divides that exist because kids already have self-identified as I'm smart, so I only talk to them. I'm not so smart, so I'm awful. Once they get into that classroom, it's like the smart kids looking at dumb kids and literally categorize themselves this way. They're like, oh wait, so we're all valuable? And my question is essentially this. Let's come up with one thing I can do to make the next class better. Not next year better, not the school year better, the next class, because you are embedded in the culture of immediacy. So I forced them to create the solidarity. I created a new group, and when we had social capital, I created a scenario where we had these four different students that represent different groups, creating new forms of capital. I've also created an opportunity where I have developed an opportunity to have three ties with these four students representing different groups. And the kids will tell you, honestly, what they think of their instruction. Honestly, they'd be like, yo, you yell too much, the examples are horrible, um, we don't like how you stand in the class, and they will tell you everything about the social dynamics of the classroom. And what happens inevitably is that once you address all the social dynamics, then they start asking you questions about the nature of your content. And that's when you got Because then they say, well, when you balance that equation, that first step was confusing. But you cannot get to get a young person to talk to you about balancing of equations unless you talk to them about what they think of the classroom instruction. Here's one of my favorite education stories. Had a student, and I got them all in the co-channels, and I said, so guys, let's talk. And they said, all right, you know, the thing that we all agree with in this class is that you yell too much, Dr. Lee. And I said, I yell too much? And I was hurt. I was like, I yell too much? 
I took time out of my life and schedule to invite you to engage in a conversation with me after class. What other teachers do that? And then you're gonna tell me I yell too much? <laughs> All right, that's how you wanna be? Cogen over. Go ahead and live your life then. <laughs> you know, live it, fine, hate school, whatever, right? And I, then I invited them back the next week thinking that it was a fluke. Guess what emerged? Dr. E, you yell too much. Kicked them out again. Because I got an ego, you know? Third time, it emerged again, and what had happened this third time is, a young lady had taken her camera, and she had started recording me in class yelling. So we came back and we were having a conversation. She said, Dr. E, you know, the thing is that you yell too much. But let me give you an example of how you yell so much. Plugged it into the computer. And she had spliced a video that lasts about a minute and a half of me yelling just in different outfits. So it's just like, ah, 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 ah. And then once I'm, comp I'm just like, okay, wait. So, so maybe I have an issue with yelling a little bit, and let's talk about it. And the solution came like this. All we're gonna do is this. Next time you yell, we're just gonna tap on our desk and give you an eye contact. That seems like it's nothing, right? Four students tapping on their desk. I get to class the next day. Why don't you bring your homework assignment in? I'm really getting tired of this. You need to get it together. And all of a sudden, from four different parts of the classroom, I just hear. <laughs> so what do I do? Take a step back. I breathe. Could you, could you please in the future? <laughs> try, to, try to bring in your homework assignment. And in that moment, guess what happens? All those four students are like, beaming with smiles. The whole entire class does not have to know about this. Just those four. And then I have them back for a conversation, and they're like, that's really good. You really worked on your yelling. I'm proud of you, right? So, so now, the issue is this. And so, by consistently engaging in these dialogues with young people, you're addressing the social dynamics of the classroom. Those things are seemingly insignificant have an impactful role on the nature of your instruction. And when you have from different students from different backgrounds, they, they directly affect how well you teach.